the next reading is in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11, which is on page 1082 in the Church Bible. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who manipulate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I once had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him... I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Charlotte. This is a hot off the press. I just got a text literally two minutes ago from Kate and Jason Jones. They had a baby boy this morning called Hugh Alexander. So they've joined the four-boy four boy gang. <laughs> so why don't I pray for Kate and Jason. Father, thank you for the birth of Hugh Alexander Jones, and we... Pray for him, Lord, that he would be a, a great man of you who serves you faithfully all his days. For Kate and Jason and for the other three boys, Lord, I pray that you would sustain them and give them everything they need to be great parents and great brothers. As we come to your word now this morning, I ask that you would fill our minds with wonderful truths, that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, that you would give us a great joy in our walk with Jesus. And I ask that for his name's sake. Amen. Today I get to speak on one of my favorite topics, it's the topic of joy, because from chapter 3 verse 1, finally my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That is our verse for the day, to rejoice in Jesus. If you want to memorize a verse for this week, memorize those four words, rejoice in the Lord. What what he's saying there is that your, your contentment, your satisfaction... Uh, Your certainty, your happiness, your security is not in your work, and it's not in your families, it's not in your property, it's not in your possessions, it's not in your finances, it's not in your hobbies. The ultimate source of your true joy and meaning in life is the Lord Jesus Christ. When I I think of, of people I know who are really are rejoicing in the Lord, I do think of someone like a Jason Jones, you know? Yeah, he has such a security in Christ. He knows that Jesus Christ is his all, his meaning, his purpose for living, even though after his accident he's now in a wheelchair. 
When I think of joy in Jesus, I think of Lizzie Williamson, do you know her? Uh, She lives with chronic pain. She's about to have heart surgery this coming Wednesday. But every single day she gets out of bed and she has a purpose and a reason for living. She doesn't allow the circumstances of life overwhelm her or, or just get her down. I think of people like Bianca, actually who just radiates this this joy of the Lord. I think of people like Ed Yorston, who is so passionate about talking about Jesus because he just wants everyone to know what he's got. That is the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in Jesus for who he is and what he's done for you. The problem with the word joy or rejoice is that we've got kind of a wrong understanding of the word, haven't we? Let's think about how how you use that word joy. Oh, it was a joyful evening. Basically, it was a happy night. Or I, I enjoyed that film, or I enjoyed that concert, or I enjoyed church. It basically means it, it made me feel good. There was something good about it. And we link joy with happiness. Or we link joy with this, this feeling, this surface level feeling. It makes me feel good. But that's not joy in the Bible. I've said it before, joy is, is more like the sun than it is the rain. I mean, the rain is here one moment, it's gone the next. Now, it can be raining for five minutes and then it's beautifully sunny again. Here and it's gone. That is happiness. Happiness which can be here for five minutes, but then something happens to destroy your happiness. It's a temporary emotion. But when you think about the sun... A day like today is a beautiful clear sky and the sun is there and the sun is shining and you feel its heat. You think, wow, yeah, it's sunny today. But what about two weeks ago when it was torrential rain and dark skies? You couldn't see the sun, you couldn't feel the sun, but had the sun disappeared? Had the sun gone? Of course it hadn't. It's just that in those days it was dark even though the sun was there. Now that is joy, you know. It's that kind of deep-seated, it never goes away emotion. It's your contentment, it's your satisfaction, it's your security, it's knowing who Jesus is and what he brings you. So even if your circumstances are hard, and even if your circumstances are dreadful, if it's those dark, cloudy, gloomy days, you can still have joy in Jesus. Now sometimes your joy will be really obvious You'll be smiling and you'll be radiating. And other times, your joy will be less obvious because you're rightly sad. But you've still got this deep-seated joy because you know who Jesus is. So I want to ask you, when was the last time you did a joy checkup in your life? You know, you do your annual checkup, don't you, for your physical checkup to make sure your health is okay. When it comes to your spiritual lives, when was the last time when you actually sat down and thought, Do I have real deep joy in Jesus? And if you don't, I want to ask you, where where is your source of joy in life? Is Is it your work? Because that won't satisfy you. Is it your family? Well, your family will let you down occasionally. Is it is it your stuff? Your possessions, your houses, your money, you know that doesn't really satisfy. Is it your health? Your fitness, well, well, that will fail you at some point. Well, all these things of this world which never bring true, lasting, permanent, deep-seated joy. 
And the promise of Jesus is that he does. He will. Because he never changes. He never goes anywhere. And he never lets you down. And that's why Paul can say in chapter 3 verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Actually, joy is one of the big themes of Philippians. You know, the, the most famous verse, chapter 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And here it is, chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in Jesus. Find your your contentment and your delight and your security in this life in the person of Jesus Christ. He says to write to you again about this. So he's written to them before. He's told them before to find your joy in Jesus. But it's no trouble for him to write again. And it's a protection for you, he says. That's interesting, verse 1. Kind of suggests that there are, there are things in this world that will try and rob us of our joy. There are things in this life that will try and pretend to, to give you joy, but they never really will. He wants to protect the Philippian church that they don't lose their joy. And that's my job this morning, to protect us as a church so that we don't lose our joy in Jesus. I've got two simple points. Things that will rob you of joy and things that will make you rich in joy. So the more, joy, the more you love Jesus, the more joyful you become. The more you love Jesus, the more joyful you become. Okay, number one, robbed of joy. What, what are the things in this life that will rob you of your joy? He, he begins in verse 2 with talking about religion. He says, watch out for dogs. That, that's not a compliment. Watch out for dogs and watch out for evil workers and watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about religious people there. He's talking about what we call the Judaizers, people who, they did believe in Jesus, but they said to the church that you have to do stuff in addition to Jesus. You have to do stuff like being circumcised. You have to do stuff like you must follow this law. They were basically legalists. They were Pharisees. They said, you must do this, and you must read this, and you must sign up for this, and you must do this to your kids, and you must do this to as adults, and you mustn't do this, otherwise you can't be a true Christian. Ever met those people? As though Jesus isn't enough. And they led out all these rules in life. And Paul says, watch out for these people. Because they rob you of your joy. Whenever you hear the words you must, you must do this or you mustn't do this, the red flags. You know, it's all about Christ, not about what we do. I want to say stop trusting in your religious stuff. Stop trusting in all the church stuff that you do. They're, they're good stuff. It's good to serve on music. It's good to be on the welcoming team. It's good to go to a Bible study. It's good to come to a prayer meeting. It's good to sing in church. But all that stuff that you do, that doesn't contribute in any way to how much God loves you. It doesn't contribute in any way that you are loved by God because Jesus died for you, not because you do this stuff. See, verse 2 is totally ironic that these people prided themselves on being religious and being clean and being law keepers. But verse 2 calls them dogs, evil workers and mutilators of the flesh. See, it seems religion is a very, very dangerous thing, you know. I think religion 
it plays into this human psyche where we want to feel as though we do something. We want to feel as though we've contributed in some way to God, as though God could love us more if we've done some religious stuff. That's why verse 3 is a beautiful verse. He says, we are the circumcision. That is, we have been circumcised in the heart. We've got a new heart and a new flesh because Jesus Christ died for us. We're the ones who have the Spirit of God living in us. We don't need to do all this stuff. So he says, verse 2, do not put confidence in the flesh. Don't start to think that your good works or your religious activities are going to earn you salvation. Actually, they will rob you of your joy. Now, you might be sitting here this morning saying, Paul, you don't know me. You don't know my background, you know. I was born into this amazing Christian family, and I was, I was baptized aged three months, and I was brought to church every single Sunday. And, you know, I was taken to Sunday school, and then I went to a youth group, and I led on youth camps, and I led Bible studies in my church, and I've got the best Sydney evangelical heritage you could ever think of. It's amazing. You don't know me. And Paul would say, you know, all that stuff, all that heritage, it's, actually, it's a blessing. Of course it's a blessing, but it can blind you to Christ. It can blind you to actually who Jesus is, and you start to find your identity and your security and your contentment in your pedigree or your background. And if you think that you're the most impressive Religious CV, look at the Apostle Paul. He says, verse 4, I once had confidence in my flesh. I once trusted in all the religious stuff that I did. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence, he says, I can beat you on that. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, an eight-dayer. You know, the covenant of Abraham. Of the tribe of, or the nation of Israel, a pure-blooded Israelite. He says down in verse 5, of of the tribe of Benjamin, so one of the only two tribes that didn't rebel, the best tribe, the best church, the best family who kept all the law. Verse 5, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He says, I speak both Hebrew and Aramaic. I pray in the original languages. And when it comes to his good works, verse 5, regarding the law of Pharisee, He's the kind of guy who had all the laws of the Bible written out on his fridge, ticking them off night after night after night. I'm a good, good Christian man. I'm a good, good Jew. Verse 6, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. I was zealous for God. I was, I was seeking to honor God with everything I did. That's why he hated the church. And regarding the righteousness that, come, that is by the law, blameless. So you, could, you could look at his life and you could say, he, he is an upright godly, exemplary man. And you kind of step back and you look at his CV and you go, wow, this man is the real deal. He is a world-class religious person. But it means nothing. But, verse 7, beautiful word, but. Look at verse 7. Everything that was a gain to me all his background, all his attendance, all his law-keeping, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. What he's saying there is that he looks back on his past and his upbringing and his pedigree through the eyes of Christ, through the lens of Christ. 
And once you've met Christ, and once you've understood that he died for you, he loved you, it's grace, not works. Once you've understood that you can do nothing to, to make him love you more, he just loves you. Once you've understood that, and once you've seen Jesus, then all that stuff of the past, it's not even neutral, is it? Verse, eight, verse 7, I've considered to be a loss. He's saying those things almost blinded him to Jesus. He relied on those things and thought he was good enough. I hope you've got it. I wonder if you were sitting here this morning and I asked you to write down your, your Christian resume, all, all the stuff that you've done for God. What do you put? Oh, I've been a Christian for 27 years. Um, the tribe of church by the bridge. A good solid teaching and I've led worship in church and I've led barbers for the past 10 years and I was baptized as a child and I led on youth camps and I've led Christianity Explore Course and I've led other people to Christ. And my parents were pastors and I grew up in the church and I hardly ever miss a Sunday. I was there every day. And regard to the law, like, you, should, you should look at my bank statement. I'm always upright and I, I give so much to Christian charities. And I always keep the Sabbath. Always keep the Sabbath. And Paul would say, that's rubbish. Do you know Christ? Do you know how much you're loved by Jesus? Are you doing it for Jesus or doing it for yourself? Are you finding your identity in the stuff that you've done? Or in who Jesus is? Because if you're finding it in the stuff that you've done, you'll be robbed of your joy. Why? Because if you start to find your identity in the stuff that you've done, you become proud or you become judgmental, judging other people because they're not doing all that stuff. Or you become guilty because you haven't done enough. You either become proud, judgmental or guilty. And those three things will rob you of your joy in Jesus. Not just church stuff, it's everything. Verse 8 is a, is, a, is a scary verse. It says, more than that, it's not just my religious upbringing. I consider everything to be a loss. Yeah, that's his, his career and his family and his aspirations and his fitness. All that stuff is a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, if Paul was here this morning, he would say, I had a great life. I was a very successful scholar, but I didn't know Christ. I had wads of cash, but I didn't know Christ. I had a lovely family, but I didn't know Christ. I had a great career ahead of me, but I didn't know Christ. And then one day I was walking down this road called the Damascus Road, and I met Christ. And I understood grace. I understood that God loved me, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ has done. And that's the day my life changed. And all that other stuff, it really is meaningless compared to knowing Christ. You know when you do or go to a funeral? I do lots of funerals. And there's a, there's a coffin, there's a body here in church. And the people say things like, you know, he had everything ahead of him. Like, what is that Everything. Or, you know, he's a wonderful man, 
He had everything this world had to offer. Everything this world had to offer. But what about the next world? Because that's what Christ does. It actually gives you meaning for this life and for the world to come. It gives you security for this life and for the future. See, all the, all the things, all the everythings that you might find your joy in, your, your family, your marriage, your friends, your holidays, your hobbies, your money, your career, your possessions, your image, your reputation, your education, all that stuff that you might find your joy in, it is fleeting. And it will fail you. And it won't ultimately satisfy. But when you realize your identity, your security, your joy is not in those things, but in the person of Jesus Christ, who never changes, who never lets you down, and always, always loves you. That's the source of true joy. Let's find out what makes you rich in joy. I've got three R's for you. Here's the first one. Relationship. You have a relationship with Jesus. You have a, a friendship with Jesus. That's verse 8. He said, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing. It's a relational word of knowing Christ Jesus, my personal Lord. Down to verse 10, my goal is to know Jesus. That's Paul's ambition in life, is to to know Christ. He lives for Christ. He gets out of bed to know Christ. His source of his joy is knowing Christ. And that word for know in verse 10, if you didn't know this, that word for know in verse 10 is actually that intimate marriage word. A husband knows his wife. Adam knows Eve. It's the most intimate of relationships And Paul says that he has that intimate relationship with Jesus. Closer than any human relationship. This deep, personal, intimate relationship with Christ. And what struck me this week in verse 10 is that my goal is to know Jesus. But Paul wrote verse 10 30 years after the Damascus Road. So he has known Jesus for 30 years. And what he's saying here is that you can never really say, oh, I I really know Jesus, because there's always more of Jesus to know. It's like any human relationship. You can never say, I really know somebody, because the more time you spend with them and the better you get to know them, the more you discover about them. And what he's saying there is that his goal in life is to know Jesus better today than he did yesterday. And his goal is to know Jesus better tomorrow than he did today. And in five years' time, he wants to know Jesus far, far more intimately than he knows him today. There's a a, a true story of a little boy called James who, he fell out of bed one night. And so mother's downstairs, here's his thud, comes upstairs and finds James lying on the floor by his bed. And she says, James, what happened? And James said this in a nice, cute voice. He said, I stayed too close to where I got in. Stayed too close to where I got in. And I think that's many of us, you know, in terms of our Christian lives with Jesus. We know Jesus died first. We know Jesus rose again. But we we just stay too close to that. That's, That's all we know. It's almost like we're scared of Plumbing the depths of this relationship. You know, you know when you get to know someone better, 
That's hard work, isn't it? It means listening. It means responding rightly. And my challenge to us is when you do that with Jesus, when you actually spend time with Jesus, you read the Gospels and you you understand what it meant for him to be kind and compassionate and loving and gracious. And you understood what made him tick and you understood the way he related to people. And when you plumb the depths of what it really means for Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth as a human being, fully God yet fully man, when you, when you plumb the depths of that, and when you understand really what it means for the, for the crucifixion to happen, what it meant for, for Jesus to really say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you plumb the depths of the empty tomb, what did it mean for Jesus to rise again or to be seated at the right hand of the Father? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I love you, I love you? When you actually spend time with Jesus and know him better, I can guarantee that your joy and your rejoicing will just skyrocket. It will not be dependent on your circumstances. Remember that famous interview with Princess Diana when she said famously, there there were three people in this marriage. And I want to say to you, you can't have three people in your relationship with God. It's you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. And everybody else and everything else comes a second best. Really simple. If you want to find real joy, then deepen your relationship. Know Jesus better as your friend and your master and the one who loves you. There's a man at uh, 7 p.m. church. He was in my barbecue last year. He's 81 years old. And he's been a Christian for 64, 64 years or 65 years. I can't remember. And almost every week he'd come to, to Bible study and he's kind of excited. He said, oh, I've read this week and I've discovered this week about this thing about Jesus this week. I'm thinking, wow, like 65 years down the track and he's still discovering wonderful truths about his Savior. And there's a man who's got deep joy, deep joy in Jesus, despite the fact that his first wife was killed in a car crash. And one of his boys was drowned when he was five years old. He's gone through deep tragedies. But he's got deep peace, deep security, and deep contentment in Christ. Why? Because he wants to know Jesus better. Here's my second R, righteousness. This is why knowing Jesus is so precious. Verse 9. Paul wants to be found in Jesus not having a, a righteousness of his own from the law, but one that's through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God based on faith. Uh, that word righteous in verse 9, it, it just means made right with God, declared right by God, declared not guilty in the eyes of a holy God. And Paul, the, the best lawkeeper, can say in verse 9, He doesn't have a righteousness of his own from the law. He understands that keeping rules never makes you right with God. It's about a relationship, not rules. But he says in verse 9, one that is through faith. So he's made right with God by by trust and by believing in Christ, by trusting the work that Christ did for him. The righteousness from God based on faith. He can't earn it. It's a gift from God. I want to make sure this morning you understood righteousness. Because I reckon many people sit in church year after year after year and never really get this. So if you've got a piece of paper 
And, and, and God has watched your whole life and he's videoed every single moment of your life, the good and the bad, and he's written down your whole life story. And you know on the last day that you're going to stand before God and he's going to play the DVD or write down the, all the stuff that you've done in life. And you're sitting there and you're quaking in your boots thinking, oh my goodness. And you stand before God, he says, Paul Dale, yeah, he did some good stuff. He was kind, he was caring, he was compassionate. He was selfless some of the time. But he was selfish. And he was proud. And he shouted his kids. And he lied. And occasionally he was lustful. And he was greedy. And that, that, that's my list before God. And you know that I stand guilty before God. I know that. You know that as well. And you know that Jesus has got the perfect record never did anything wrong. And you know that what's going to happen if you trust in Christ, then, then, then he's going to take your place. You, you know all this, that, that his perfect righteousness wipes away all your sins so you've got a perfectly clean record. And so God says, yep, you're perfect, you're clean, you're mine. And you know that, yes, that Jesus did that swap for you, yes? But, here's the but, your righteousness is not just about the last day. It's not just that you can live this whole life knowing that on the last day, suddenly Jesus will step in for you and take your place and say, it's okay, he's mine, she's mine, she's forgiven. When does your righteousness start? When does God see you as righteous? Tell me. Today? Today God sees you as righteous. Today God sees you right with God. Today God sees you clean in his sight because Jesus has clothed you in his righteousness right now. You are clothed in his righteousness divine because there's no condemnation today for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to walk around weighed down by the guilt of your sin today because you know Jesus has paid for you 2,000 years ago so that you today are forgiven by God and clean in his sight. And you know that you're not clean. You know that you're not perfect. You know, you know that you're still guilty. Of course you know that, but God sees you as forgiven and loved and righteous right here, right now. Now, why am I getting excited by this? Because I think it liberates you and gives you real joy. Because if you're just living this Christian life, waiting for the last day when you know you're going to be forgiven, no wonder you plod around looking miserable half the time. But if you wake up every day saying, today I'm right with God, today I'm forgiven by God, today I'm loved by God because Jesus died for me and he loves me, then of course you wake up going, wow, what a great day to serve my Saviour. So are you righteous today? How do you know you're righteous today? It's not your good works, is it? It's the work of Christ through faith, just through saying, thank you, I believe in Jesus. Here's my final R. Resurrection power. This promise is mind-blowing. Look at verse 10. My goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He said, my goal is to know Jesus and to know the power of his resurrection. How can Paul say he wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection? How can Paul know a power that raises a dead man to life? Of course he can, and you can too, because the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me and you. 
when you believe in Christ, when you know Christ, a relationship with Jesus, you have the, the Spirit of God living in you. And the same power is at work in you to strengthen you and to empower you and to transform you. And that's why you have joy in your Christian life, because it's not down to you changing yourself. It's the power of God that works in you to transform you. It's the power that will help you to share in his sufferings, verse 10. Because according to the scriptures, the the Christian life is is not one of prosperity and not one free from trial or suffering. The Christian life is a normal life and you will face hardships and you will face trials. But when you know the power of God at work in you to keep you, to transform you, to hold on to you, then that keeps you going. Becoming like him in his death or conformed to his death. Facing death with that humility and that confidence and that hope. Facing death differently. Assuming, verse 11, I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. There's no doubt there. There's no uncertainty there. The assuming bit and the somehow bit is less about the the fact of the resurrection and more about the, the journey he might have to go on before he gets to the resurrection. He's kind of saying, I I, I don't know what life's going to throw at me, but I do trust that I will be raised from the dead and God will keep me for that last day. So there are three reasons why you can have joy because you have a relationship with Christ. Because today you are righteous in his sight. And if you are righteous and you do know Jesus and you have that power of the Holy Spirit living you right here, right now, Ever wondered why those people get out of bed in the morning despite hardship and trials and say, today is a great day to serve Jesus because they've understood this. So I don't know what you are trusting in for your source of joy. It could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be your career, it could be your money, but those things never satisfy. So stop looking for stuff and start looking to the Saviour. Stop talking about stuff and start talking about Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more joyful you become. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the joy that you've given us in Christ. Thank you that you never change, that you're always with us even through the darkest of days. Thank you that you hold on to us, that you strengthen us, that you remind us daily that you love us with a unconditional and a lavish, steadfast love. Father, please rid us of any ideas that we have to do stuff. Please stop us from being proud or judgmental by slipping into good works. And Lord, I pray that we would be like Paul and we say that we want to know Christ. We want to know Jesus better tomorrow than we do today. Father, may we be a church that really does rejoice in you as our Lord. Amen.